All right. Well, we are. Um, some of you were more excited about the in and out truck than the kids performing, but um, God will forgive you for that. Um, no, um, I'm equally excited, and uh, you know, just uh, for all the things that's going on this busy time of the year. You know, we read this passage in Hebrews. And um, Hebrews is, in a way, it's a very difficult section. It's a difficult book because it's not your simple practical book as we love, like Proverbs or James or so on. It's a lot of theology and doctrine and history. And so sometimes it can get kind of impractical. Like, what do I do with this? But yet, at, uh, but Hebrews, especially in the section that we read, it gives us a story about Christ coming as the high priest. And he solves our ultimate problem, Right? Um, and you think about this. You think about all the problems that we have that's universal to mankind. Problems of um, finances. Problems of health. Problems that are de- dealt with relationships. Um, and that kind of sums up a good chunk of our biggest problems. And we might be, you might be going through some of that. However, there is a greater problem. And sometimes we don't even acknowledge. We don't even realize. But it's the problem of sin and guilt before God. How do I approach God Uh, when I have nothing to offer to him, when I am guilty. And so that is our ultimate problem. And so today we look at this, and um, here Jesus, it says over and over in the latter part, that he enters, he enters, he appears, that he shows up to us, and he solves that for us. You know, um, religion has been trying for as long as mankind to solve this problem of guilt and sin and so on. Or how do we get by, uh, I remember... um, Years back, I was um, at this park, and uh, I happened to spark uh, up a conversation with this older gentleman. He probably was in his 60s. I think he was, uh, um, uh, he was of Middle Eastern descent, and we just started talking, and then before we knew, we started talking about faith. That got there because he asked me what I did, which always makes for an interesting conversation whenever someone asks me what I do, right? And I tell him I'm a pastor, and I get all sorts of responses. But, you know, he asked me what I did. I said, I was a pastor. And, uh, and then he says, well, oh, you're a Christian pastor. I said, yeah. And he told me he was, a Mus- he was Muslim. I said, oh, that's good. And he was asking and kind of questioning me. It didn't seem like he was asking for answers, but he was questioning, uh, well, what's the difference and so on and so forth. You know, what makes it different? So I asked him, I said, well, the, the difference is that Christianity deals with the problem of sin and guilt. And I said, and he goes, so does the, the Muslim faith. So I asked him, I said, what do you do? How do you become forgiven? And this, I specifically remember him telling me um, very boldly. Um, he said that he prays three times a day. He says, I don't care where I'm at. I kneel and I look and I pray and, uh, for, to, towards Mecca. And I pray three times a day, nine o'clock, noon, and at three o'clock. And I say my prayers. And he says, I am so faithful. He says, I will never miss. And I pray in that way. I said, well, I admire your um, boldness and, you know, your devotion. I said, not many people are like that. I said, well, so I said, you pray and then you're, you're, you're forgiven by your God. And he goes, yeah, I, I repent of my sins. And I remember asking him this question. I said, well, I said, let's hypothetically, let's say you pray at noon and then you curse someone. You know, you, someone just made you angry and you, you know, you, do, you say something to someone. And then before you get to your three o'clock, um, while you're still guilty, you get hit by a truck and you die. I said, what happened to the sin? What happened to the sin there? And I thought it was a simple question. I thought he would have an answer and he was actually speechless. He goes, but I would have prayed at three. I said, yeah, but you don't make it. Let's say you get hit at two, by the 250 bus, right? The blue line going, you get hit by that bus. I said, what are you going to do? 
And uh, that is the problem that is universal in what we see here today in the first part of Hebrews that we, um, uh, Hebrews 9, we didn't read that, but in the first part it talks about this is what the people of God did. This is what they had to go through, and it explains the tent, explains this section of the tent, the back room, which is called the Holy of Holies, explains all the different articles that were within the tent, and we're going to talk about that together. But all of that was necessary because this was God's way of saying, this is how you're going to deal with sin. And now, the latter part of chapter 9, here appears a better high priest, a greater high priest. Jesus Christ appears. And he is greater than the Old Testament way. So we're going to be looking at that. You know, and we all deal with this. And there's a the famous story that um, we know from Edgar Allan Poe, the telltale heart. You know, the narrator goes in and for some reason he ends up killing this neighbor who's this older man. Not to steal, not because he didn't like him, he just kills him. And uh, he explains how he kills this old man. And to hide the evidence, he ends up dismembering this old man's body. And he ends up now burying it. Um, opening up the floor of this man's bedroom and then putting his body underneath and he puts all the wood and everything back. And then right as he finishes and he cleans everything up, not a drop of blood, there's a knock on the door. The police are there. And the police come in and say, hey, we got reports from a neighbor that this old man was screaming. There was a shrieking. So we came to check, is everything okay? And he is so confident that he's got all his tracks covered that he invites them in. And he's talking to them confidently, and he even invites them into the bedroom where he committed this heinous crime, where the body was underneath. And he is now talking to them, and he is very confident, but all of a sudden, hears this low thump, thumping. And it gets louder and louder, and he thinks and he realizes that it's the heartbeat, the heart of this old man is beating and it's beating louder and louder to the point where at the end he confesses and he says okay I confess he's underneath his heart is beating I know you could hear him and they don't hear a thing it was his own conscience it was his own guilt it's stories like this point to the fact that boy we we take things with us there are people who won't come to church because they're because of their guilt I can't go to church you know I need to get right before I even go to church and I'm sure you've invited your friends or, um, you know, coworkers or whatnot. Say, oh, I can't go to church. Oh, I'm not good enough to go to church. And the guilt keeps them away. And so whether that is our man's greatest problem, what do I do with my guilt? What do I do with my sin? And here in the Old Testament, and just, I want us to follow along here on, and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. One, here it says this, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. So here is the tent of, you know, that they would go and they would make the offerings. And it says in verse two, these, this is how it was. In the first section, there was the first area. Uh, it says in verse two, there were these things. That it was the lampstand and the table and the bread for the presence. The lampstand. Um, there were no windows. Once you went in, it was blacked out. Once you went in, you couldn't see. And the lamp stand provided light. It was light. It was as if you went in and now you have vision because of the lamp and the light. And the people of Israel were called to be the light. His people, us today, are called to be the light. Jesus Christ himself was the light. And so there is this picture of this idea. But first thing your eye is drawn to is the light. And you say, he is the light. The second thing that's there is a table. 
And the table of presence is what it's called. And on it were, is the bread of presence. The bread. We see this in verse uh, 2. What would happen is on, on the Sabbath, they would go in, the priest would go in, and they would bring 12 loaves of bread. And they would place it on this table, and they would take the weak, old, long, old bread, and they would take that, and the priests themselves would eat this bread. They would eat this old, stale bread and have to leave the fresh bread there. Right? It was bitter. It was no good. It wasn't like it was a meal. It was a chore to now try to eat this old bread. What does the bread here represent? Jesus Christ calls himself the bread of life. Today we're going to take communion after, after the message. And he uses bread to say, here is my body. Right? And so we get this idea that it is this place where there is sustenance. There's this place where there is life. Uh, when Jesus himself feeds the thousands and there are leftovers, there happened to be 12 baskets of bread left over. It wasn't because they didn't calculate it right. It was a picture of what was happening here. And so the disciples, the 12 disciples, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples, the 12 baskets of bread, the 12 loaves that we see here uh, was now given. And so we see that was there. And then you see in verse 3, there was, uh, verse 4 rather, a golden altar of incense. Incense was there. Incense represented, um, and we see this in, um, uh, in Psalm 141, verse 2. You know, David, he says his prayers, our prayers are like incense. And so it was this picture as you could, physic, you could uh, see the incense, the smoke rising up. It was a picture of now the high priest, and only the high priest would enter into the back room, the most holy place, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And as he is going in, the incense is here. It's a picture of what is going to happen. My prayers are going to go to God. It's going to be lifted up to God. And he would go into the, now into the holy of holies, or the most holy place. Two different ways of saying the same thing. And once you go in the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. If you've been in the church, you've heard that. The Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't too big or too impressive. It was only about four feet um, long and two feet wide, two feet high. It was a little wooden chest. But it had a, a gold cover over the top called the mercy seat. It had statues of two angels, the cherubim on the sides. But what was... Um, mattered the most was the contents of this. And I want you to just stay with me on this just a little bit longer. Um, in it, we see here in verse 4, there was a golden urn holding the manna. And you remember the manna in the days of Moses, and they came out, the manna, what, it meant, what is this? Literally meant, what is this in the original language? The bread from heaven that came, and they saved it. So this represented God's gift, but also man's rebellion. You remember, they complained. We want to go back to Egypt. We don't want manna. And so it had that. It also had what it tells us here in verse 4, Aaron's staff that budded. Aaron's staff that budded in number 17, when they're trying to figure out which of the 12 tribes are going to be the priests. Um, Aaron represented the tribe of Levi. And they, and, and they gathered the 12 these are sticks that are broken off. They're not alive anymore. It was only his that budded. 
And eventually it was still budding. And it says even almonds were on it. You know, it was bearing fruit. And so they became the priests. They became the Levites. They became the ones who would work um, and represent God to the people. So that was in there. It represents God's calling on, on who was to come. And the third thing that was in there were the tablets, verse 4, of the covenant. And we were familiar with the picture we have of Moses coming down with the two tablets, right? The, the two tablets were not five and five or four and six, but it was all the covenant, all the laws, and it was a copy of both. And so it was like your own copy that the people of God had, and they said, keep it. And so what would happen is the priest would come on the, uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement and they would bring the blood of the animal and he would now pour it and he would cover the, what's called the, the, the top or the mercy seat. It was the mercy seat because the idea that God is looking down on the law, he's looking down on the manna that represented the rebellion and all he sees is the blood that covers the inadequacies. And he would come back out. And this would happen once a year. And you say, well, um, but we have to understand something. I don't think the people did this in a ceremonial, casual, flippant manner. I think the people of Israel, when they did this, it was just a horrible experience. If you've ever witnessed, uh, maybe you even saw it on, on, on TV or some shows, and, but when, um, when they have to take a live animal, and the animal somehow knows that they're going to be killed and slaughtered, and you would imagine back then it's not done how it is now where it is, looks so nice and it's packaged in such pretty ways and it sells at Costco and, you know, uh, the blue packages are, you know, there's more marbling. And it's, it's not like that. It was, it was a bloody mess. And the sounds of the, that the animal is making because this animal already knows something is going to happen and the blood and the way that it happened and the priests would be covered in this blood. It would be a mess. And the people would witness what happened. And they would think about the sins that they've committed. The lack of faith that they had in God. Their, their faithlessness. Man, um, the way they hurt other people. They would think about all these things and they say, oh man, it's an innocent animal. And they would now offer this. But they would do this regularly. And it wasn't good enough. But now comes the good news. The second part is continually keeps talking about the appearance, the entering of someone who is greater, Jesus Christ. I saw this video recently. and These are one of my favorite YouTube videos I like to watch. It's uh, when lions and hyenas fight. You know, like those ones. I, I, just don't, I don't like the rated G ones where they're just like showing fish and stuff. I mean, I want like them to just, you know, and, and then you know how it is, on, the, the feed keeps going and YouTube now knows this guy likes the stuff, the blood. And so, dog, you know, African wild dogs versus hyenas and the hippos, you know, so I watch it all like it's a UFC fight, like, you know, and I saw one recently and this was, this was great. The music was great. Um, and I thoroughly enjoy this. Uh, this young male lion wanders from its pride. They, um, you know, the narrator obviously knows why, you know, because he was a foolish young male lion. Wander, you know, they, they'll tell you why. I'm like, how do you know, right? But the, the, the lion wanders off, and he's, he's, you know, surrounded by all of a sudden 20 hyenas. 
they are mortal enemies. And they explain the music. There's this war music. And now, but this line is getting attacked. And if you've, if some of you have seen this. All of you, if you haven't, you'll go home to watch this now, right? And they're attacking from the back. And this line is starting to get worn out. And so he's spinning in circles trying to protect himself. And they're just going at it. But then the music changes. And the voice of the narrator changes. But look, on the horizon is his big brother. Here's the sound. And you see the big brother lion sees, you know, and he is coming to save, and he's now running over, and there's the climax of this little video, and as he runs over, and the hyenas see the big brother coming, they scatter. Right? One versus 20 they could do, but two they can't handle, they say, and they come in, and he comes in to save the day. I thought, wow, you know, what, what a, kind of a picture we see, right? You know, obviously, that doesn't do justice for this scripture text. But it keeps telling us here, Christ appeared, verse 11. Verse 12, you know, uh, he entered. Um, uh, Verse 24, Christ has entered. It's this picture of someone coming to save us. A picture of desperate people trying to save themselves. And all of a sudden, here is a high priest who is greater. And he says, I'm going to solve your ultimate problem. And so he appears, and I just want to highlight these three. First, he appears as the, uh, the better high priest in verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He comes, the greater high priest, the high priest of the day. Uh, they would have to wear certain types of clothing that was um, written out in the law, and they would have these golden bells on the clothing. Uh, the scriptures doesn't tell us this, but the traditions tell us that the high priest would also have a rope tied around their waist, and the rope would go all the way outside of the tent, because the other priests are not allowed to enter into the most holy place. And so they would listen for the bell, and if the bell all of a sudden made no noise for a prolonged time, they realized he was struck dead. And they couldn't enter themselves, so they would then pull the high, human high priest out because the high priest himself was insufficient. It wasn't perfect. But here comes the better high priest, the perfect high priest, who enters boldly who goes in boldly and offers the perfect sacrifice. And so he appears. And this is great news for us. The second thing we see here, again, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places. This is good news. It's done once for all. It's interesting because this is contrasted. When you read the uh, whole chapter in verse 6, it kept emphasizing the repetition of the high priest having to go back in and to do it over and do it over. You see in verse 6 it says, These preparations having, been, having thus been made, the priests go regularly. Right? And the commentators point out the word go is in the present tense. It meant that they had to keep going. It was a continual action. But not only that, it was followed by this adverb, regularly. So it's a picture of a priest day in and day out offering sacrifices. Every year having to go in there. And they would do this non-stop because the sins were not stopping. And the sacrifice was ultimately insufficient. The good news is, you go back to verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy place. It's done. It's finished. 
And it says in the latter part of verse 12, thus securing an eternal redemption. Isn't that such good news? He secures it. His name's on it, so you can't be lost, it can't be stolen. So those of us, as we've made our profession to Christ and you are following him, whether you feel like it, whether you feel like a Christian or not, you're secured. You cannot lose this. There are many places in the Bible that talk about this. My favorite out of all is Romans 8, 38. And I just want to read a little bit. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I remember there was a, uh, when I was doing youth ministry and we would do these weekend revivals and you'd give an altar call, come to the front if you want to accept Christ. And I remember uh, on a, we did a Friday, Saturday night. I remember Friday night we made the invitation. I remember this young junior high girl coming to the front crying. I want to be a Christian. I want to accept Christ. And it was great. You know, we prayed and we had prepared for this. I little gift and, you know, prayed and read the Bible, you know. And, and then the next day we did it again, right? Yeah, come, come to the front. And our music's going. We're trying to, you know, get them going, ready to go. Lo and behold, it's the same girl who comes up to the front again. I'm like, oh, yeah. And I said, hey, what are you doing up here? You can't, didn't you come up here yesterday? Yeah, I came up yesterday, but... I just want to make sure, you know, so I'm up here again. I was like, hey, if you're here to get another gift, you're not going to... No, I didn't say that, but... I was like, no, you don't need to come up here twice. You don't need to do this twice. And there are some people that say, oh, I feel like it now. I want to get rebaptized again. You don't get rebaptized. You're baptized once. Uh, you are secured forever. It doesn't matter if you feel like it, if you've been good or bad or whatever it is. He secures it. And that is the answer to the greatest problem that we have. And thirdly, it says he entered in verse 24. Not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. So the, whole, the presence of God was now, tried to be, had been replicated in this tent. It was a picture of a, approaching God, and if you're going to get to God, he is in heaven, and Christ enters freely. And he goes there, and he takes us with him. And so it wasn't so much that Christ did this ceremonial thing. He went to heaven. He went to the presence of God. And we are free to go. Verse 14 says this, and this is how it impacts us. It says this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I'm sure for the people of Israel, after the sacrifice and after the day of atonement, that there was a sense of joy. Like, oh man, you know, we're free. And then as the days would go by and the months would go by, the guilt would start adding up again. But he says, you're free. You're free to serve the living God. You're free to say, I am going to do these good works, not to impress God, but because I'm just so grateful. You're free to go and share your love with someone. If someone says, oh, who do you think you are? I'm not perfect. But he is perfect. I close with the story of um, Martin Luther, the reformer. And he talks about a specific dream that he had where Satan would come. 
And this dream that he had, uh, Satan would come with a list of all these sins, and it would torment him. And just so you know, Martin Luther, yeah, he's the reformer. He's the one that Martin Luther King Jr. himself named himself after. He used to, uh, um, but just a little backdrop, you know, at the age of 21, Martin Luther um, is walking in this severe thunderstorm, and a bolt of lightning strikes the ground right next to him. And as a, uh, a Catholic, he prays to one of the saints, Saint Anne, and he says, if I make it home and I'm alive, I'll become a monk. He gets home that day and he fulfills the vow that he makes to Saint Anne, and he says, okay, I will not become a monk. He sells all of his possessions, he enters the monastery. Uh, he was up to that point a brilliant person, he graduated uh, the fastest that he possibly could have in all the degrees that he had studied. So once he became a monk, he uh, was known as a very successful monk. He would do things like he would pray for days, he would fast, he would go do all these aesthetic practices to beat his own body. He would uh, go without sleeping, endure bone-chilling cold without blankets on purpose. He would um, whip himself and to try to now control his own passions and body. And he even self says, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. Later on in the 1514, he is teaching on the book of Romans, Psalms and Romans. And he gets to the book of Romans and he gets stuck on this word righteous. The righteous will live by faith. And he realizes how unrighteous he was. And the guilt that he had from his sin was started haunting him. He said, I'm not righteous. How I could do all these things, freeze to death on purpose, deny myself any pleasure, but I was still not righteous. And then his eyes looked at the word faith, that they would live by faith. And it says at that moment that he was born again, and he had realized what had happened. But he would have these dreams, and the dream would change, where Satan would approach him and said, here is his list of all his sins, and it would torment him. But in one of his dreams, he answers back. And he says to Satan to write on them all the sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sins. And he would say that, and the dream ends. You are free. Your biggest problem, our biggest problem today, is taken care of by Christ. We can't hear the good news long enough. And so we come here today. And today, if you've been striving on your own, trying to be a good person, trying to do these things, and guilt is haunting you, go to him and say, I put my faith in you. And so we continue this life of gratitude. And we're going to take communion. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. And he accepts you. Not because you're better than your neighbor. He accepts you because of what Christ has done for us. Isn't that good news? Let's pray.